Hi, this is Charles Christoph Carter from Serial Dreadfuls with a special announcement. After much careful consideration, we at Serial Dreadfuls have decided to change the name of our Patreon members from Dreadmongers to Dreadnoughts. Why the change? It has to do with how we want our patrons to be perceived and to perceive themselves. Dreadmonger literally means someone who peddles fear. We'd like a more positive and powerful name for our patrons. That's why we've come up with a name, Dreadnought, which literally means Fear Not. While we certainly showcase scary and frightening works of fiction, we want our patron community to represent a powerful and fearless group. As such, we believe that Dreadnought is the most appropriate and fitting name to describe each of our members. This change will go into effect with the release of this episode. Thank you. Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In last week's episode, Henry Muntz, a mentally challenged man, found what remained of an unidentified body up at Mirror Lake. After arriving at Reverend Hollander's rectory in a traumatized state, he was interviewed by Joe Martin, the town sheriff. Despite Joe being unable to get much information out of Henry, it was Henry's extreme agitation that convinced Joe that he needed to go up to the lake and take a look around. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, Narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Pregnant gray clouds had begun to crowd the horizon, threatening to block out the sun as Sheriff Martin and Todd picked up the path behind the Johnson house that led to Mirror Lake. 
Sheriff, you never told me what you were looking for, Todd said. We're looking for what Henry saw. Yeah, right, Todd sniffed. We're listening to a retard who's working with only half a deck. He imagined he saw something up here, so we're checking it out. Is that what you're seeing? Joe glared at Todd. For as long as I've known him, Henry's never been the kind to make up stories, and I've never seen him act like that before. What he said back at the rectory was nothing but a string of disconnected thoughts. It made no sense, Todd replied. Someone or something frightened Henry. His actions and that one thing he said about soft spots and a white hand tells me that Henry saw something, and I want to find out what it was. That's why we're checking it out. The path twisted to the left, and they followed it. He probably stepped on a dead animal. It's probably nothing more than that, Sheriff. There certainly wasn't anything at the house. How could he live like that? The kitchen was the only room that wasn't covered in trash. The other rooms had newspapers, half-eaten cans of pork and beans, empty cereal boxes, and stale bags of chips scattered around. The whole house smells like piss, Todd said. And we didn't find anything in the barn. Do you really think we're going to find something at the lake? Something scared him. This is the only other place he's been, Joe replied. Joe and Todd continued walking up the path. Todd walked closest to the lake. Joe walked to the outside, consciously widening the distance between Todd and himself as they slowly circled the still body of water. A few minutes later, Joe came upon a place where the high grass looked as though it had been disturbed recently. Todd, over here. Todd joined Joe. Walking several feet apart, they slowly advanced. Ten yards into the high grass, Joe found a small tan suitcase. He knelt down and opened it. There was an old cardigan sweater on top and some dirty clothes beneath that. At the bottom of the case, Joe found a baseball glove and ball, a crystal bell wrapped in tissue, and a photograph of an older couple standing on either side of a young man in his navy dress whites. Who's that? Todd asked, standing above him, staring down into the suitcase. I think the old couple is Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, but I don't know who that is, Joe said, pointing at the sailor. Joe pulled the dirty clothes back over the items. They smell like piss, just like piss, just like Henry, Todd quipped. Maybe you're right, Todd. Maybe this does belong to Henry. Joe closed the suitcase, grasped its handle, and slowly stood up. If it is Henry, then we should be pretty close to whatever it was that scared him. The two men moved forward. Just ahead, Joe saw an area of tall grass that had been trampled down. He moved in that direction. He hadn't gone far when he stepped on something that felt strangely soft beneath his foot. He stopped, quickly lifted his boot, and looked down with a scowl. He half expected to see, like Henry had, mud on his boots. Instead, he first saw the remains of a brown jacket, and then a white hand and the grayish-white face of the body. Its long blonde hair was woven in a tangled mass amid the tall blades of grass. Jesus, Joe said, startled, as he stepped back, stumbling over the corpse's jacketed arm. Todd heard Joe's epithet and joined him. I guess Henry did see something, Todd said, grimacing as he caught sight of the corpse. The two men knelt and scrutinized Joe's unexpected discovery. The insect's larvae were finishing their work, 
Small animals had been feeding on the decomposing body as well. There was a gold wedding band and a matching engagement ring on the corpse's finger, a gold cross around her neck, and on her right wrist she was wearing what appeared to be an expensive watch. The motive wasn't robbery, Joe thought to himself. He stood up and scanned the surrounding area. He knew that there was a campsite 50 yards back from the lake. Todd was watching him closely. You're thinking what I'm thinking, aren't you, Sheriff? Todd said slowly. Joe nodded. I hope we're wrong. Joe swore as he carefully stepped over the corpse and moved off through the tall grass in the direction of the campsite. Todd followed, taking one quick glance back over his shoulder at the corpse. They entered the campsite. Fifty yards from the first body, they found a second. It was face-up, still wearing the remains of a green plaid flannel shirt and jeans. There was a small gold chain and cross around its neck, like the first body. Its shoulder-length brown hair was matted into the grass. Its left hand still clutched an aluminum tent pole. On the index finger of that hand, there was a delicate gold ring that formed two small hearts. Joe stared at the hearts for a few minutes. His stomach tightened. His body shuddered imperceptibly as a cold shiver swept over him. Although the bodies were badly decomposed, the condition of the clothing looked familiar. Like the clothing on Judith Dalton, it was shredded. However, he'd have to wait for the coroner's report to determine if they'd been killed in the same manner. About 20 feet away lay the brightly colored remains of two tents. Joe nodded to Todd, and they both moved in that direction. A few feet from the tents, they found the third body, face down, in the same condition. Jesus Christ, Sheriff, Todd said as he stared at what was left of the third victim. Joe put on a pair of latex gloves and bent down to inspect the body. In what remained of its back pocket, he found a tattered leather wallet. The contents were badly mangled. He found what appeared to be a credit card, a debit card, and the remains of a $100 and a $50 bill. In the other plastic sleeve, he found a severely slashed driver's license for Ted Murdoch Sr. Is it the missing family? Todd asked. Joe nodded his head slowly. Eve had gotten a response on the plates that she had run. The jeep that Jasper had totaled belonged to the Murdoch family. According to the missing persons report Linda Murdoch's parents had filed with the Lynchburg, Virginia Police Department the first week in August, Ted and Linda and their two teenage children hadn't returned from a camping trip to Pennsylvania. If they were camping in Pennsylvania, why were they this far north? Joe muttered under his breath. Todd stared at Joe. He didn't say anything, but Joe could read it in his eyes. What the hell is going on? Check the blue tent first and then the orange one. Disturb as little as possible, Joe said. Todd carefully walked through the crime scene to the first tent. The deputy slipped on a latex glove and carefully lifted the remains of the blue nylon material. There was a backpack lying underneath. He lifted the aluminum frame of the backpack from the cold ground. It had no bottom. The backpack's contents had been spilled over the hard, damp ground. There were articles of clothing and underwear wrinkled and stiff, covered with dirt, an unopened box of tampons. 
A dull red square object caught Todd's eye. He carefully bent down to retrieve it. Sheriff, I found a wallet over here. Joe walked over to where Todd stood. His deputy handed him the weather-beaten leather wallet. Joe carefully opened it. Inside, he found a Virginia driver's license for Linda Murdoch. The picture on the license showed an attractive woman in her mid-forties with long blonde hair, the same color as the tangled mat of hair on the first victim they'd found by the lake. Todd had moved on to the orange tent. It was ripped and tattered. Jesus Christ, Todd swore. Sheriff, you better get over here. We've got another body. Joe joined Todd and squatted down to look at what remained of the fourth body. It was in the shredded remains of a cocoon-style sleeping bag. Let's see if we can find some kind of identification, Joe said finally. Underneath the corner of the orange nylon, they found two backpacks in relatively good condition. They carefully opened them. They slid their hands inside each pack, taking care not to disturb the articles each one contained. Inside the first pack, they found a wallet in a separate zip pocket. It contained a picture identification of Theodore Murdoch, Jr. In the second pack, Joe found a slim wallet. Inside, he found Wendy Murdoch's learner's permit and a picture, he assumed, of the family. All four of them were together, smiling. Joe grimaced. What a waste, he thought. He and Todd stood up. The two men surveyed the campsite and then looked at each other. Joe could see confusion, frustration, and bewilderment on Todd's face. As they continued to search the rest of the campsite, Joe tried to make sense of what was going on. This campsite was very rarely used after the 4th of July, even by local people. What drew this family to this location? There were no scenic sites, no popular hiking trails to draw them. If Henry hadn't stumbled upon one of the bodies, with winter coming, their remains might not have been discovered until next spring. Todd, go back to the cruiser. Call this in and get a forensics team up here. Todd pursed his lips and glanced nervously around at the crime scene. Finally, the deputy nodded and walked back in the direction from which they'd come. Joe watched until his deputy disappeared from view. Now that he was alone with the crime scene, he let his eyes move slowly over what he and Todd had discovered. There was a knot in his stomach. Feelings he thought he'd never have again crept out from where they'd stayed hidden for the past few years. Feelings he hadn't had since he'd left the force in the city. Feelings he had never wanted to experience again. Briars, sawgrass, and stunted saplings covered much of what was left of the logging road. Greg Vivian followed the road until it ended. Then he pushed on for another half-mile through torturous terrain of thick brush and deadfall, threading his way along the ridge of the mountain that was marked by sheer cliffs of bare rock until he came to a stand of old-growth evergreens. Hidden among their dark shadows and heavily moss-covered deadfall was a suede-backed, tar-papered shack whose porch had long ago surrendered itself to the elements in the porcupines. The shack's roof buckled in the center, bowed by years of heavy winter snows and neglect. Shards of glass clung precariously to the window sashes. Tentacles of thorny vines crawled out from inside. The door leaned inward, hanging from one rusting, stressed hinge, 
its bottom badly gnawed and rotten. Several saplings had thrust themselves up through the decaying floorboards. A badly rusting oval tin stove, pockmarked by irregular holes where the rust had eaten through, stood in the corner with the skeleton of its stovepipe chimney running up the wall. The slowly decaying structure was surrounded, almost obscured, by the dense growth of evergreens in their overlapping boughs. Vivian stopped and caught his breath before he pulled his flashlight out of his pack. He stepped cautiously just inside the doorway, shining his beam of light around the single-room structure, examining it. A smell of damp, musky decay and animal urine saturated the dilapidated structure. It was still standing, but he didn't know for how long. The porcupines had been gnawing on some of the lower boards that covered the far wall. An old shutter covered a glassless window at the back of the structure. There were cracks between the boards that made up the walls, and the floor sloped toward the back of the room. There were a couple of rough wooden shelves still fastened to the wall. He shined the beam of light on the stovepipe. It was tilted to one side. The cement that surrounded what was left of the stovepipe, where it exited through the roof, was black and cracked. There will be no fire here, Vivian muttered. He carefully stepped forward. One rotting floorboard broke under his weight, causing his foot to fall to the soft dirt beneath it. He grabbed the door jamb and pulled his booted foot back through the hole that had been created. It's not much, but it's better than a jail cell any day. Vivian slipped his pack off and hung it carefully from a hook on the underside of one of the shelves, hoping that the weight of his pack didn't pull the whole wall down on him. Then he stepped back outside. He moved away from the shack some 150 yards, the brush getting thinner and the pine trees more stunted until he reached the ledge called Owl's Bluff. He stood there in the cold. The rapidly fading November light would soon be gone. He looked north where two mountains seemed to join, creating Grover's Notch. He figured he was about a mile and a half from Harvey's place if he took the more difficult route down the mountain. If he went back the way he'd just come, nightfall would overtake him in the deep woods, and he'd be further from Harvey's house than he was now. There was also a good chance that someone might see him. He went back to the shack and got his rifle and knife. When he stepped back outside and stood still in the fading light, the 3D camouflage suit he was wearing broke up his silhouette, hiding any defining lines, any trace of human shape. In the low light of the woods, he would be hard if not impossible to see. He strapped his hunting knife, secured in its sheath, around his waist, and slung his rifle over his shoulder. He loaded four clips with bullets and put the clips in two pockets that would be easy to reach. If he left now, he could make it to the meadow just in back of Harvey's house before he lost the light completely. He knew he wouldn't be able to make it back to the shack in the pitch black of the November night. He knew of several camps that were empty where he could bed down for the night. They weren't as safe a haven as this old shack, but he'd be gone as soon as it was light enough to see before anyone would be likely to notice him. A gusting raw wind sighed through crooked tree trunks on the high north slope of the ridge. Amid the crooked trunks of old wind-blown trees were treacherous granite outcroppings that slowed his descent. He carefully took one step at a time, knowing that a misplaced boot could easily send him over a 150-foot precipice. 
The temperature was dropping, and the fading light made it difficult to follow the ill-defined trail. A stand of old-growth hardwoods was littered with moss-covered fallen logs. Five hundred yards ahead, the hardwoods gave way to a stand of cedar, which crept down the steep face of the mountain, interrupted only by a deep gorge through which a gushing stream rushed. Below him, in the rapidly fading light, Vivian could make out a large cedar tree that had fallen across the gorge. He worked his way down the slippery outcropping of rock until he reached the fallen cedar. He mounted it and slowly pulled himself across the crude bridge. He continued to make his way down the mountain through the stand of cedar trees, their numbers replaced by spruce that only began to thin at the base of the mountain. There the spruce gave way to bracken and thorn that overgrew what had once passed for pasture. He moved out of the tree line and into the overgrown pasture where he sat down to rest. The light was all but gone. He took his glove off, tucked it into the belt that held his knife, and pulled the small brown bottle he'd taken from Hunter out of his pocket. He worked his mouth, building up a pool of saliva. Then he opened the bottle and took two capsules out placed them in his mouth, closed the bottle, and shoved it back into his pocket. He swallowed both capsules. One went down, but the other capsule got caught in the back of his throat. Isn't that always the way? There's always something that fucks up, he thought to himself as he tried to work up enough saliva to force the second capsule down his throat. But it was no use. The capsule was stuck to the back of his throat like it had been put there with crazy glue. He retched a couple of times, but it was stuck fast. He used his ungloved hand to search the ground for a pebble. His fingers found a smooth one, and he picked it up, rubbed it between his fingers to remove the dirt, and placed it in his mouth, hoping it would help him produce enough saliva to force the capsule down. The pebble worked, but he could feel traces of the capsule's contents burning the back of his throat. He spit the pebble out and rose to a crouching position. He scanned the surrounding area. He saw no one. Satisfied that he was alone, he started across the open pasture. And now, a preview of our next episode. With the death of Judith Dalton weighing heavily on his mind, Joe Martin decides to retrace her steps and an attempt to get a lead on her killer's identity. Faced with an ever-increasing number of unexplained, gruesome murders and what has always been a sleepy, relatively peaceful town, Joe finds himself haunted and troubled by memories from his former life as a city detective. Suddenly, as if summoned by those very memories, his former partner shows up unannounced at the station house. Will his partner's appearance be a boon for the stressed sheriff, or will it just add to the ever-increasing chaos? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, 
and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.